Good to see everyone who could be here as we continue our study. Uh, last night after this session was finished, um, Brother Roger let me know that his flight was canceled and he could be here uh, late in the week. Um, if everybody, now he didn't say that, if everybody wanted to wait for him. But, so it's like, well, okay. So uh, uh, this happens to be a topic that I've spent a little time on, but not near as much as if this had been my topic for the study. But Roger is well, uh, but I'm sure quite frustrated that he'd done all the preparation for this topic and, and wasn't able to be here for it. This is one of the fundamental topics. And whenever we deal with individuals who are not accustomed to the Lord's church, it can be quite, quite a, an awakening for individuals to care so much about the Word of God. And sometimes when we talk to people about how we treasure and value the Word of God, they will begin, of course, they agree with us. And it's like, and we, and we pay attention to the details. We treasure, we value the Word of God, yes. And, and we pay attention to the details of the Word of God, and, and yes. And then we start really talking about the words of the Word of God, and individuals say, really? Really? And so we have passages like Ephesians 3, verse 3, how that by revelation, Paul says, he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And so the words that are in the scriptures are the words that we pay attention to. And we look at these words very carefully. And of course, we know that not only the words, but even the the tense of the words, past, present, future, that type of thing. And that Jesus himself discussed life after death by using the present tense for someone who had died. So when we start looking at that degree of detail, I know it will not surprise us who are here, who are members of the church of longstanding, that we need to pay close attention to the details of the words in the Lord's Supper as well. When we're introducing the Lord's Supper to someone for the first time, it's an honor and a privilege. And so we need to treasure that opportunity. We need to be respectful. We need to be gentle. And at the same time, we need to be able to tell the truth. So that's the purpose of these fundamental topics in this study is to remind us, how are we going to use these truths, this wonderful knowledge, to share what we know with others? that they might grow in our congregations or that we might be able to introduce these, these truths to individuals for the very first time. The questions for this topic. In Luke 22, 20 and 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, 25, we have the phrase, this cup is the New Testament, the New Covenant. Please explain the figures of speech and their significance in the phrase. Number two, when is the word cup being used literally versus figuratively in the Lord's Supper? How does using multiple cups in the Lord's Supper agree or disagree with Jesus saying this cup is the New Testament or New Covenant? Does the cup ever become an incidental in the Lord's Supper like a plate holding the loaf? In the Lord's Supper, does an empty cup represent the New Testament, the New Covenant? The complete phrase is, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. The fruit of the vine is another topic, but please discuss the meaning of the phrase in my blood as it relates to the cup that is the New Testament. And... Does this cup is the New Testament in my blood parallel the Ark of the Covenant in any way? 
And whoever gave these questions obviously didn't know the answers to all of these questions, as I discovered whenever I started trying to prepare this talk. Okay, these phrases are from Luke 22, 20, 1 Corinthians 12, 25 through 26. In those particular accounts of the Lord's Supper, we find the phrase, this cup is the new covenant or the New Testament, as we would see in the old King James. So we do know that we're talking about the Lord's Supper and a specific aspect, a specific part of the Lord's Supper that is mentioned in multiple places. When I talked about this in, my, in the video that I posted on my Facebook page, I, I use props and, uh, and I wear different shirts and that's one that was made in South Africa. Alan will remember when I shopped at the store and Richard will too, I went to the store to get myself a South Africa shirt and lo and behold, they didn't have fluffy sizes. And, uh, and so they, they very generously offered to have one made for me. And so they did. We went back the next day or someone went back the next day with money and, and that was my shirt. And so I'm, I have such happy memories when I, when I see things like that. Now, what you see on the table there is me recording a video and asking questions like, if we're going to have the Lord's Supper, what are we going to do? How are we going to do that? And what's there before us are things that individuals will look at around the world and say, oh, I see some familiar things there. Others will look at this and say, I, I don't know what that is. And why is there a tea kettle on that table? So there's, there's all kinds of things that, that I use as props in trying to explain this. And I would encourage us to be willing to say, what do you think this means? And hold up a glass or hold up a loaf of unleavened bread when we're talking with individuals. So this is all adapted from various videos that I've put online in the last few years that individuals around the world have watched and many individuals here as well as I trust. In the, in the Bible we find multiple accounts of the Lord's Supper. We find accounts of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians. And the 1 Corinthians account is very different from the other accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are chronological accounts of the life of Christ, as is the book of John. John does not include an account of the Lord's Supper, but includes things that the others do not have, as all of them have unique features, and all of them have things that they all report on. 1 Corinthians 11 is different. There is no attempt in 1 Corinthians 11, to, or 1 Corinthians as a whole, to give a chronological account of the life of Christ. That chapter is all about correcting a practice that was wrong. So it is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are saying, here's what, was, here's what was being done. Here's what was next. Here's what was next. Here's what was next. Paul says, here's something you need to correct. That's a very different account. By the way, I use that as an argument from time. How much time had passed when, between the time that the church began and Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. However much time it was, it wasn't enough time for it to be okay to change the Lord's Supper. And if that number of years was not okay for it to be allowed to change the Lord's Supper, neither is it allowed today. So we look at these and we see in 1 Corinthians 11 an inspired account of the institution of the Lord's Supper for the specific purpose of correcting their error. Now Corinth had started correctly. Uh, Paul was there with them for a year and a half, and we know that when he was there, he did not ignore the worship. And wherever we go around the world and individuals are converted, what do we then do? Well, we teach them about Jesus and about the need to be saved from their sins and how to do that. 
in reenacting the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and obeying the gospel in faith and repentance, confession, and baptism for the remission of sins. And then we say we also worship. And we do that consistently every first day of the week. So we know that when Paul was there, their worship was correct. But after he left, somewhere in time, they decided that they would make some changes. However, they still called what they did the Lord's Supper. When Paul talked to them, he did not praise them. He said, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now they were coming together in one place. And they were doing that correctly. But what they were doing was not what they were supposed to do. And Paul says, shall I praise you in this? Now he could have said, I understand from those of Chloe that you've changed the Lord's Supper from how we observed it when I was there. He could have said, that's fine. Just do whatever you want, whenever you want, or don't do it at all, whatever you decide. And that is what is taught around the world today regarding the Lord's Supper. But he did not praise them for their creativity. He did not tell them to do whatever they wanted because how to conduct the Lord's Supper was not up to Corinth. Neither did Paul say to them, oh, you've done some changes. Here's some things others have done. No, because how to conduct the Lord's Supper was not up to Paul because the Lord's Supper is the Lord's. And the emphasis always in the Lord's Supper is on Christ and what he wants to be for us to do in his memorial. So Paul took them back to the beginning. I've received of the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed. The word delivered there means that Paul is saying, I have given you this information in the past, and I'm going to give it to you in the exact same way again. Linsky comments, Linsky's a Lutheran, but in this particular area, he's very interesting. It says, with calm patience, Paul sets to work to repeat his original instruction to these disorderly Corinthians and thus to correct this flagrant abuse. So anytime someone departs from what God had ordained, do we see that as a flagrant abuse? And that's always something for us to, to think about because we can... We can be led astray by, by the language of Ashdod around us, you know, and we can do, do one small step at a time if we're not careful. And we've seen the tragedies among us as individuals have done that. Dunnigan comments, and Dunnigan is a uh, Church of Christ multi-cup commentator, if, if I understand it correctly, and he's compiled comments from others who commented on these. He said, that which also I delivered unto you, Paul had taught them in the past, exactly what Jesus had revealed to him. Paul had not been presumptuous to alter it, but the Corinthians had of the traditions that they claimed to be keeping. This was not one of them. And Dunnigan says, points to note, the only way to correct the abuse of a biblical practice is to get back to the original instruction. The instruction of New Testament, the restoration of New Testament Christianity can only happen by going back to the Bible. This was Paul's method. Paul doesn't correct the common meal they were calling the Lord's Supper. He has placed all such meals outside the assembly. He presents the correct view of the Lord's Supper, indicating that the only meal which the congregation is to sponsor, which Christians are to partake of when assembled for worship, is the Lord's Supper. Paul, an apostle of the Lord, refused to improvise or alter the original instruction given by Jesus. Then after he gave them the details of what Jesus did, he said, This do 
And he says, let us remember Paul's repetition of Jesus' phrase, this new to Corinth reminds us what Jesus did is a command, not just to those in attendance when the Lord's Supper was instituted, but equally a requirement of every New Testament congregation for how to correctly observe the Lord's Supper. And so the important New Testament guideline remains, once we are told what to do in the scriptures, we do not need a list of what not to do. And such is the case with the Lord's Supper. Paul did not go through a list of what not to do. He just said, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. Stop it. And then he gave them what they were supposed to do. Well, when we look around the world for communion, for the Lord's Supper, many religions do not commune at all. And some of them say because of the size of their groups. Some commune with many individual cups. There's multi-cup, multi-loaf congregations. Some with one cup, one loaf. Some commune with a loaf broken in two pieces. Some with many small pieces of bread. Some with leavened bread. Some with unleavened bread. Some commune with fermented wine. Some with grape juice. Some with water or flavored water. Some commune by eating a piece of bread but never drink from a cup. And we may wonder, is there that much religious confusion in the world and indeed there is. Now, one source says, from a denomination about the Lord's Supper, there are many ways to serve communion. The Bible does not dictate a certain method. The important thing to remember is that this is a time of worship and celebration. It's a time of remembrance and reflection. Enjoy it, and you will see you and your group members grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And isn't that interesting? It is positive. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. And it is wrong. And so we have individuals who are very sincere saying, oh, well, it doesn't make any difference what we do. And there is, no, <laughs> there is no verse that this person turns to to say whatever we want to do. Understand, though, if this is correct, Paul was wrong. Because Paul said to Corinth, you need to stop what you're doing. Now, did they enjoy what they were doing? I imagine they did, or else they would have changed it to something else. I presume that they really enjoyed their changes, as many people do in the religious world who create innovations and bring them to pass. But Paul had a reason to correct Corinth. The reason was what they were doing was not authorized by the Word of God. So what do we put on the Lord's table? Well, we know that bread is there. And the only acceptable bread, as we've studied already in this study, is an, a single undivided loaf of unleavened bread after the manner of bread used in the Passover from which each participant breaks off or removes a piece for his or her own consumption. Nothing else fits the pattern established by the Lord Jesus. We also see a cup on the Lord's table. And when discussing the bread of the Lord's Supper, we have no idea how many loaves were on the table, but Jesus took one and gave it significance. Similarly, he selected a cup from however many cups may have been on the table, and he gave significance to that drinking vessel. We see that in such language as was found in each account of the Lord's Supper. He took the cup. He took the cup. He took the cup. He also took the cup. He also took the cup. It's like, well, do you think we're slow learners? You're telling us we have to see this four times? It's like, yeah, we are slow learners. <laughs> Once would be enough, but we have multiple accounts of the Lord's Supper, which gives us no excuse, but it also gives us multiple opportunities to read and understand. 
And some of us will read something at a glance and grasp the meaning of it, and we'll understand that for life. Others of us need to, need to have more, and God has provided that in this particular instance. Once is enough, but he gives us all of these opportunities to learn the wonder and the beauty of the Lord's Supper and the details of it. So whenever there's a cup on the Lord's, tupper, supper, uh, on the Lord's table, we know that Jesus took a cup. Now, we know, we know what a cup is, and I've got a picture there of some cups. There's a clear one, there's a red one, there's some little bitty ones, and there's a white one. But those are some cups. So a cup is simply a drinking vessel. That's, that's really all it is. And a cup may be a literal cup. It may be used in a figurative expression. But any reference to a cup always has the foundation or the basis of a literal drinking vessel. And a cup does not change into something it is not. A cup is a cup. A cup does not change into a shoe. A shoe is not a cup. A cup is not a shoe. A cup is a cup. And we know that from very, very early age. Now, the Old Testament's first use of a cup was, the, interestingly, the interpretation of Joseph's dream and Pharaoh's cupbearer where the cluster of grapes was squeezed into the cup. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Well, we can understand what the cup was for. It was a receptacle for that which was squeezed out of those grapes. And if we were to see this done, we would know exactly what was being done. And if asked to act as the cupbearer, we would know exactly what to do. Have you ever wondered how he got into prison? The first place, did he spill something? Did, you know, I, I don't know what he did. But it is very interesting that these people usually sampled whatever the Pharaoh was going to partake of. And if they lived, then the Pharaoh would continue to imbibe. So this is a cup. And we look at this and say, well, yeah, I, I, I can understand that. And we can. And that's the important part of this. There's nothing in the Lord's church that is beyond our ability to comprehend and understand and do. We can do this, and we can understand it by looking at examples like these. In the New Testament, we find the first uses of the concept of a cup having to do with giving cups of water in Matthew and also in Mark. In each of these accounts, we have a cup that is a drinking vessel containing water being given to someone for them to drink. If we were to see this happen, we would know exactly what was being done. And if asked to do the same, we would know exactly what to do. So the word cup, paterion, just has to do with the drinking vessel, an object from which one may drink, and it can also be used in a figurative sense. So the figurative senses of this particular word include when the mother of James and John wanted special positions for her sons, and Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Now they were asking for favor among their peers. And they really wanted to get the best positions in the kingdom that was going to come when Jesus overthrew the Roman Empire somehow. And of course they said, we are able, we are able. But that is a use, a figurative use of the word cup. Jesus in agony in the garden said, let this cup pass from me. So in these accounts, when we first encounter these figurative statements, we may not know what the reference is, but we know what a cup is. We know the foundation of what is being discussed. 
And whenever, whatever is being discussed is compared to drinking from a cup. And this is important. Whenever a figure of speech is used, we must understand the basis for the foundation of the figure or else we are not likely to understand the application of the figure. Jesus compared what was going to be expected of James and John as apostles and what he was expected to do in the near future as drinking from a cup. And so we know what a cup is. Have I said that already? We know, we know what a cup is. There are similar actions in the Lord's Supper between what was done with the bread and what was done with the cup. In the same manner, he also took the cup. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. So in the same manner, Jesus did something, uh, that, that Jesus did something with a loaf of unleavened bread. He's also going to do something similar with a cup. And these are simple words. He took a cup. He took a cup. And the word took there simply means to grasp, to handle, or to pick up, to get hold of. That's what he did. So there was a physical grasping and holding of a drinking object, a drinking vessel. Then he assigns a new meaning, a figurative meaning to the word cup. He says here, this cup, and he would have been holding it, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Luke 22, 20, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. Now, do we know what a new covenant is at this point? No, we have no idea. But we know what a cup is. So we start from the foundation of what we know to go to what we do not understand. And when we go to what we do not understand, we do not abandon what we know. So since we know what a cup is, we can go on and learn and see more things. Now the figure of speech that is used here that helps answer some of the questions that, that Roger was given has to do with the metaphor. And the way that figures of speech work, something named in a figure may be literal or it may be figurative, but the basic rules of biblical interpretation mean we always look for a literal meaning first before looking for a figurative meaning. When Jesus called Herod a fox, go and tell that fox, we don't have Herod magically transformed into the animal that is a fox. So that logically is a figurative expression. And so we have figurative expressions in many, many different places in the Bible. A man named Bulger made it his life's work to find a figure well, just about on every line of the Bible. And there's a bunch of them. But this particular one simply says we look for a literal meaning first before looking for a figurative meaning. And in the Lord's Supper, when bread is named, we presume it is literal bread until the contextual setting or meaning of the words force us to be, believe otherwise. And when a cup is named, we presume it is a literal cup until the contextual setting or meaning of the words force us to believe otherwise. And if a cup is named in a figure, the cup has to be represented for the language to be understandable. And the figure of speech for both the loaf and the cup in the Lord's Supper is metaphor. And it is a common figure of speech that makes a comparison by directly relating one thing to another unrelated thing. And the writer or speaker relate two unrelated things that are not actually the same, and the audience understands that it is a comparison, not a literal equation. A metaphor simply means carried across. And it, that is what a metaphor does. It carries a shared quality or characteristic across two distinct things. So Jesus said the loaf of bread 
uh, was to stand for his body. It carries across the meaning of his body being represented by the bread. The cup that Jesus held was to stand for the new covenant. It carries across the meaning of the new agreement of God with man. Represented by the cup, a literal drinking vessel. And so the use of a figure of speech, this metaphor, it's clear and easy to understand. Just as the bread is a literal loaf of bread representing Jesus' body, the cup is a literal drinking vessel representing the new agreement or the new covenant of God with man. Now, we have Jesus holding the cup. He took a cup. What did he do? Well, he gave thanks or he prayed. He blessed it, as, as we say. And then um, he gave instruction. Now, the exact words of his prayer are not given. I would suggest that when we are privileged to initiate the Lord's Supper, that it would be wise for us to mention what we're doing and what these things mean and what they stand for. We may have visitors who've never seen this before. We may have children who've never listened before. We may have adults who've never really listened before. And it is always helpful for us to explain, this is what this is, and this is what this means. And so we find here the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And notice, if you will, that there are two separate functions within the Lord's Supper. There is the communion of the body of Christ, and there is the communion of the blood of Christ. We do not do those at the same time. We have the communion of the body of Christ from beginning to completion. Then within the Lord's Supper, we have the communion of the blood of Christ from beginning to completion. Once the communion of the body of Christ is finished and everyone has had an opportunity to partake, the communion of the body of Christ is finished and the loaf needs to be set down. And then when we have had the communion of the blood of Christ and everyone has had an opportunity to partake, then the cup is set down and there is no such thing as leaving them both out all afternoon for somebody to drop by. Neither is there any such thing as somebody coming in after the dismissal prayer and say, oh, could you bring me the loaf? Oh, could you bring me the cup? We gather together and we have a specific time for the communion of the body of Christ that is then followed by the communion of the blood of Christ. And it requires our utmost attention. And if we miss those, then we have missed those because we do not go back and gather the assembly again to again observe the Lord's Supper. So each week we come together and we want to be very careful to be there. We want to be very careful to make sure, and, and every mama in the world, and some daddies too, know that babies don't care what's going on. <laughs> and so we have to be very careful to make sure parents with babies are, are able to observe the Lord's Supper and that we know where they are. I, I once heard a man say, check the room, check the room, to those who were passing the emblems. And it's like, check the room, check the room. Well, his wife had, had gone to the back, and so he was up here in the front. Check the room, check the room, and the poor people had no idea. It was totally disruptive. But though in every congregation, we know where people go with babies, and we know where people go when they have a coughing fit or whatever, and, and we can do these things without disrupting the thought process of every one of us in the Lord's Supper. So Jesus holding the cup, he's still holding it, 
He's prayed, and then he gave thanks. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Well, but he sipped first. And that's implied from Matthew 26, 29. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from the vine now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he had just sipped and he said, I won't do this again until something has come to pass. So Mike Criswell comments on this, that uh, clearly every time the church assembles around the Lord's table, he is with us. But he's saying, Jesus is saying, this year I drink this as part of the Passover. Next year or next time I will drink it in an entirely new and different way. So Jesus took a cup. He held a cup. He said something about the cup. He prayed. He sipped. And now he gave it to them. Well, what did he give? Well, the cup he took is the cup for which he prayed, the cup from which he drank, and now it's the cup he gives. It's the same cup. So that's why I say it's good when we study with people to get out some cups. And say, okay, let's figure this out. You hold the cup. And you can't pass that cup on until the Lord did. And when we do that, we can see exactly what to do. He took the cup, gave thanks, gave it. What did he give to them? Well, he gave the cup he was holding. Drink from it, all of you, Matthew's account says. And so we can understand these things. What were they to do with the cup? Well, they were to divide it among themselves. And that's what they did. They too were to sip from the cup and then pass it to the person nearest to them. Well, they drank from the cup that Jesus had been holding. And each person took a turn until the cup had passed around the table in the initial institution of the Lord's Supper. So the point is here, as Linsky comments, Jesus instituted the sacrament with a common cup that was used for all the disciples. Any change in what Jesus did, which has back of it the idea that he would not do the same thing today for sanitary or for aesthetic reasons, cast a reflection on Jesus which is too grave to be allowed. So think about it for a moment. If Paul wrote us today, what would he say about how to observe the Lord's Supper? I think he'd simply say, see 1 Corinthians, <laughs> see 1 Corinthians, it's still the same. It hasn't changed. So the pattern established by what we have read is Jesus took a cup, a single drinking vessel, gave significance to that, and then shared it with everyone around the table. So we have a new figure introduced, the figure of metonymy. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, and much is done in our discussions with individuals from the multi-cup uh, church about how you divide a cup, how you drink a cup. And they say we, we divide a cup or drink a cup, and the only thing that matters is what's in the cup. But metonymy is a figure of speech in which one object or idea takes the place of another with which it has a close association. And metonymy means change of name. And so it is used, for example, when someone says, I'm getting a glass of water. And someone says, I'll take a glass. So you can imagine someone coming back and just handing them an empty glass. And they're saying, what is this? Well, you asked for a glass. Well, we know what we're talking about. We know what we're talking about. Do you want a cup of tea? And in the United Kingdom, I'll have a cup of it. It's so fun to use British terms. Uh, so privacy takes on a whole new meaning. Privacy. And uh, <laughs> whenever you start looking at that, I'll have a cup of, well, what is that? That means you want a cup of tea. 
And so we, we know this language. We know these words. We understand them completely and totally. And when we look at their use in the Lord's Supper, we can understand them there as well. An age-old example of metonymy, whenever we're told to drink the cup, we could say, well, the kettle is boiling. We know uh, what's boiling is what is inside the kettle. When does the kettle become the contents of the kettle? It never does. When does the contents of the kettle become the kettle? Well, it never does. The kettle stays the kettle. The contents stays the kettle. And when does the contents of the cup become the cup? Never does. When does the cup become the contents? It never does. It cannot work in the grammar of the passages. Ronnie Waite said, in autonomy, the thing named does not become the thing suggested. The kettle does not become the water, and the water does not become the fruit of the vine. So, our multiple cup brethren teach and sincerely believe that the cup is its contents and that the contents is the cup. Many individuals, younger than me, in the multi-cup church of Christ have never heard of worshiping with one cup and one loaf. They've never heard of it. Many of their preachers have never ever talked to anybody that used one cup and one loaf. And so when we point out to them that they end up with nothing else to do except pour a liquid out on the table when it's their turn to pass the communion, they don't understand that. Because to them, cup is a code word for grape juice. And however they consume grape juice, to them it's fine. They say that they can have a liquid and the container doesn't matter. Well, does it matter? Well, it only does if the Lord says it does. And so whenever we look at the example of the kettle is boiling, the contents of the kettle cannot boil without the kettle. And the kettle cannot boil without something in it. And the contents of the cup cannot be divided without a cup. And the cup cannot be divided without something in it. It takes both for the figure to be logical, to be correct, and to be understandable. George Batty in his debate notes quotes Irvin Waters, applying the definitions of metonymy, there is the thing named, a literal cup. The thing suggested, literal fruit of the vine. There is a relationship between the two objects. The fruit of the vine is contained within a literal cup. And even in metonymy, a literal cup is involved. And the above definitions clearly indicate, George says, the object named is not the thing suggested. There is a real object, not an imaginary one named. Both the thing named and the thing suggested must exist in the metonymy of the container for the contained. The container named must contain the thing suggested. And that's what's going on in the Lord's Supper. One can only suggest the contents of as many cups as he names. How many cups did Jesus take? He only took one. That's the cup he took. It's the cup from, from, that he prayed for, that he sipped from, that he passed. And so, it can only suggest the contents of as many cups as are named. Well, what was in the cup that Jesus gave them? As we know, that was the fruit of the vine, or grape juice, as we have studied this morning. But that cup was not empty. Because our verses say, this cup is the New Testament, in my blood, which is shed for you. And so the phrase New Covenant or New Testament in my blood reflects what is called the instrumental case or the case of means. It often indicates the method by which an action is carried out. How did a covenant become into being? Well, because of or by the blood of Christ. 
And so we have this, this language that is figurative as well. The way the New Testament helps us to understand said, so this is the New Testament ratified by my blood, which is to be poured out on your behalf. So the means of procuring the new covenant, the new agreement between God and man, was the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross. So what represents the new covenant in the observance of the Lord's Supper? The cup, which is a literal drinking vessel. And they say that it represents the New Testament, but how was it ratified and approved? By the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross. And we cannot separate the cup from its contents. Because a cup without this contents and without this focus is just a drinking vessel. And grape juice without this focus, without this application, is just a pleasant beverage. So what have we learned in our journey? There's much that is similar between the communion of the body of Christ and the communion of the blood of Christ. And whenever Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, He took bread. And He also took a cup. But that cup was not empty. These were literal things. Uh, the bread was literal. And the cup was literal. The grape juice is literal. And He assigned new figurative meanings to the literal items He took. He said, this bread is my body. The cup is the new covenant, the fruit of the vine is His blood. And so all of these things become vitally important in the observance of the Lord's Supper. So which cup do we use for the Lord's Supper? Which loaf do we use for the Lord's Supper? Now I had Cassie make me a couple of different loaves. One that we would normally take to worship and that other just looks like a lump there. But that's also unleavened bread. And now, the, the Hebrew bread of the Passover was likely thin sheets of what's called matzah bread, uh, unleavened bread. But even that lump of bread right there is not leavened. So we may look at that and say, well, that's more than a half an inch high. That's got to be leavened. Well, no, it's just unleavened bread lumped up and baked. And uh, anyway, what's more convenient and what's more practical? Well, the flat one, of course, is more convenient and practical when passing from person to person. Now in that baggie uh, right there is what a multi-cup author calls celestial chiclets. And uh, uh, that's, a, that's a baggie full of communion wafers. And this does not originate with me. This was an author in a book on what, what does the Bible say about the Lord's Supper, published by College Press. And he says, we don't break those. Somebody breaks them in a factory. They don't fit the pattern. He's like, yeah, and? But he never would say, we shouldn't do this. He was just upset about it. But can you imagine getting one of those little teensy, teensy celestial chiclets and trying to share that down your row? It's like, no. And it totally violates what Brother David talked about, the bread which we break. It's an individual action as we all partake. And so we look at the bread and we say, we, we can see this. We know what to do. Well, what about the cups? I don't have a silver cup on my table. Can you believe that? I, what have I done? What have I done? So let's go to some places where several of us have been around the world. Let's go to places where <laughs> they have the outfit they have on. They may live where Brother Allen and I have been last June. Some of them may live at the very top of a very, very tall hill. And they live in condemned housing, the slums. And if there's a landslide in the rainy season, 
and a house slips down and somebody dies, as happened, nobody cares. So let's go to that place and let's say, you don't have a silver communion cup? Brethren, we, we need to stop and think. What's important here is not the way the cup is made. The importance is that there is a cup, a cup, that is used appropriately and properly. And it may be any one of these things. But I've got a thimble there. But yet among people who mean well to them, that is a communion cup. It's an individual communion cup, which is a violation of terms. Communion never means by myself. It never does. And the joint participation of communion is always multiple individuals doing the same thing, not me watching you or you watching me. It means we're doing the same thing. This do. Do is what we are to do, not what we are to see somebody else do. And so in this example of which cup, yeah, three of those could be used anywhere in the world to partake of the Lord's Supper. And I hope we wouldn't mind. I hope we wouldn't care that it's not a beautiful silver communion set. There's nothing wrong with that, of course, because it serves the purpose which God has given us. But let us never make the mistake of thinking that those are the only way that we can observe the Lord's Supper. Because when we travel to different places, even in the United States, there are some individuals that just have a clear chalice, and that's their cup. Let's not be distracted by that. Let's just simply partake of the Lord's Supper. Does this fit the pattern of the Lord's Supper given by Jesus with those little chiclets in the middle, little cups around? No. Does this fit the pattern, those little zip-off things that you can have the little piece of loaf in the top and the grape juice underneath, a fellowship cup it's called? No. And so we have a loaf and we have a cup. The blue arrows indicate that. And with those things, we can commune anywhere in the world. And hopefully we would be willing to do so. And then we have great meaning that's given. The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Okay. Does this cup of the new covenant in my blood parallel in any way the Ark of the Covenant in any way. Now, I, I had so much fun coming up with that question, but I didn't want to answer it. I, I, I wanted somebody else to tackle that question. This happens to be a cup that is from the Holy Land shopping site, and it's a communion cup made out of acacia wood, and uh, that is the wood that was used for the Ark of the Covenant. So their, their combination in this was to say you can take the wood that was used to make the Ark of the Covenant and you can have it lined as this one is, and it can be a communion cup. Now, this is a little bitty one. It's not, it's not for, for use in a, in a large assembly. But under the law of Moses, the Ark of the Covenant was a chest of acacia wood that contained, among other things, the tables of stone of the Ten Commandments representing the law. So the question is, is there in any way a parallel between the Ark of the Covenant and the cup of the New Testament? And my my parallel that I thought of about midnight last night was, well, each is a commanded container 
with significance. Now, I see nothing that links the two, and there may be something there that somebody knows immediately and obviously, but each was a commanded container, and under the law of Moses, there were specific instructions of how to create the ark of testimony, <coughs> specific instructions, and they had to be observed exactly, and they were. And in the Lord's Supper, what are we to do? Well, we have a commanded container that has great significance. Brother George Batty has done us all a favor, and on his website he has his debate notes, and this is an excerpt from them where he has very carefully gone through and uh, given us the figures of speech for every aspect of the Lord's Supper. And he has said, this is where it is metonymy, this is where it is literal, and this is where it is a metaphor. And he's done that with these particular passages, both in Luke chapter 22 and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 25. And he also has this, which I found fascinating. The cup itself represents or symbolizes the new covenant without contradicting one another. Matthew and Mark explain what the grape juice symbolizes, the Lord's blood. While Luke and Paul explain what the cup itself symbolizes, the new covenant. And this chart says, Matthew and Mark, this fruit of the vine represents my blood. Luke and Paul, this cup represents the new covenant. These are not contradictions and so we have one loaf representing the body of Christ, one cup with grape juice to represent the one new covenant ratified by the blood of Christ. Even without the representation of the cup being the New Testament, it is still obvious there was only one cup used in the institution of the Lord's Supper. If we did not have those two accounts saying that the cup is the New Testament. We could still know we should only drink one, from one. However, giving the drinking vessel itself significance eliminates any other way to correctly observe the Lord's Supper. Let us treasure God's words and be very careful. And if we have an opportunity to share God's words with others who do not understand them, be gentle, be respectful, but these things can be learned. We learn them. We know them. And others can too. I'm through.